We live in a world of technologies that misdirect our attention, poison our political conversations and jeopardise our democracies. In his book, Lie Machines, How to Save Democracy from Troll Armies, Deceitful Robots, Junk News Operations and Political Operatives, Philip Howard, Professor of Internet Studies at the Oxford Internet Institute, offers ways to take these lie machines apart. The book draws on an analysis of social media and public polling data, in-depth interviews with political consultants, bot writers and journalists. In this episode of Between the Lines, the author talks about how digital technologies are used to produce, distribute and market political lies, and how strategies differ in different countries, and how the disinformation landscape is evolving. Interviewing Philip is IDS digital and technology researcher, Tony Roberts. Philip, welcome to IDS Between the Lines. Thank you for making time to talk to us. Of course, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the book. In fact, I think I must be one of your best customers because I've bought four copies of Lie Machine so far and shipped them to friends in South Africa, Nigeria and Zimbabwe, and to people who are researching digital disinformation in their own countries. And I really enjoyed reading the book. It manages to be both accessible and to provide real insights into how politicians use digital technologies to produce distribute and market political lies, a subject that we've all, unfortunately, become familiar with since Brexit and the Trump elections. And your book does a great job of lifting the lid on a complex problem and helps us to understand how the manufacture of information is managed and provides us with a clear framework for understanding the subject. So we're indebted to you for that. Philip, I'm curious to know what was it in your personal or professional background that led you to write this book at this time? Well, I'd say uh, those, are, those are kind words. And I'd say the um, original impetus from the project came from an experience I had uh, while I was living in Budapest in the summer of 2014. This was the summer that the Malaysian Airlines flight was shot down over Ukraine. You may remember um, this, um, you know, global, really high impact incident. And I watched as my Hungarian friends got several different kinds of misinformation about what had happened over their, their Facebook feeds. There was the story that um, the US military had shot the plane down uh, because they were uh, doing maneuvers and had slipped into Ukraine and were aiding democracy advocates. There was another story that democracy advocates had shot it down because they had thought Putin was on the plane flying commercial from, from Amsterdam to, uh, to Malaysia. And then there was the story of the lost tank from World War II that had, had been stuck in the great forests of, of Ukraine and emerged confused and accidentally shot the plane down. And it occurred to me that the, the, the misinformation strategy here, all, all of my Hungarian friends thought the sources for these stories were, were the Russian government. Um, it seemed that the strategy was not so much about providing one narrative that would help um, people coalesce, uh, opposition coalesced and protest coalesced. It was about providing multiple conflicting, sometimes ridiculous narratives that different fragments of the population would get so that there was no consistent, nothing consistent to respond to. Now, What's really surprised me over time is to see this as go from being a 
political communication strategy that um, dictators would use on their own people to being one that dictators would use on their neighbors like Poland and Ukraine and, and Hungary to then becoming one that the, uh, the Russian government would use on voters in the West and perhaps during Brexit or, or the US election 2016 are the, the good examples of this. And then to have that communication strategy become one that elected leaders in democracies actually start to use on their own voters. That, that transition was what was, was really surprised me over the years. And you know, the, the original title for the project was Truth Machines. I was setting out to study how social media could be um, used for building consensus, uh, identifying social problems, uh, you know, and, and generating uh, good ideas around, around solutions. But um, most of the evidence from the last few years doesn't, doesn't point in that direction. So, so that leads nicely to the next question, because I think maybe we need to start with some kind of basic definitions. What, what are lie machines and what do you mean by computational propaganda? A lie machine is a, a social and a technical system for putting an untruth into the service of ideology. This is, this is how I define it and let me unpack it. I think for most of us who in the social sciences, uh, or for a long time, the social sciences have, have very expressly rejected the notion that you can give, that you can ever locate agency in material. Agency is always with people and their social institutions. And I, I want to argue in this book, I argue in the book that, that it's no longer possible to talk about modern politics with a, without uh, telling the storyline of the technical system, the material underpinnings of how we communicate, the stuff on our phones, right? That those are the primary means of mediating politics now. And these technologies provide capacities and constraints on our action. So the, my methodology goal here is to try to get us all, especially in the political sciences, much more comfortable with the notion that, um, that the material world provides capacity and constraints on our, on our action. Now the other stuff, the, the untruths, I, I, I didn't, I also said the, the book is um, five months old at this point and the study of misinformation has changed so much, right, with COVID. Um, and I used to be mostly focused on computational propaganda when it was about bots, right? Uh, chunks of code that mostly operated on Twitter, although there's, there's other, I have a good Tinder story I can tell. There's, there's, there's other platforms that, 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 that bots operate on. But for the most part, the story involved Russian operated bots that would create fake news and, and, and uh, send it around, send it around the world. Now it's much more about subtle misinformation that, and there's, there's flavors of it, right? The, the Russian government strategy has a different flavor from the, the current Chinese government strategy. Um, and it's so much more subtle than it was in the summer of 2014. Yeah. So uh, for me, one of the most useful things about the book Lion Machines is the framework by which I mean the metaphor of the machine. And you use it to clearly distinguish between the separate elements in the machine and it, you explain the stages in the process of digital disinformation. So can you briefly talk us through the cogs in the machine? Tell us a little about how Lion Machines produce, distribute, and market political lies? Well, there's several different components to this. And there's, 
there's a component that involves the, the original team that will pick a platform and craft a few messages and do some A-B testing to figure out which ones travel the farthest. Uh, usually they'll pilot a study, uh, test out a study um, before launching it in a massive way. And that's, that's the production phase. Then there's a dissemination phase, a distribution phase, and that usually means uh, taking advantage of the, the properties of the algorithms in, in the platform of choice to really game the algorithm, right? So if they're trying to get messaging done, uh, shaped through Google search, this can involve um, figuring out how to um, Google bomb an issue, right? Or, or create uh, certain kinds of, of search returns when you search for a name, for example. If it's YouTube search, there's other tricks to gaming the results on a YouTube search. Um, if it's about Twitter uh, or Instagram or Facebook, there's other tricks you can use to make sure your content really spikes. And so that distribution phase takes advantage of whatever the affordances of a platform are to make sure that the content arrives at a target audience. Now, the final stage is this involves a sort of aftermarket of additional consultants who spend time making sure that the right messages are, are hitting the right people. They will um, generate organic content, right? Additional personal messaging that, um, that can carry a, carry a meme further. They'll do additional analytics. Uh, sometimes they follow up with uh, traditional TV media or print media journalism, right? So that it all seems like a credible package of ideas. And, and so it's a, fairly, it's a fairly complex process that can involve firms from around the world. It certainly involves many different kinds of software of uh, social media platforms at this point. Um, but yeah, it can, be, it can be quite a large complex machine. And, and are there different people involved in the different stages? Who does the production? Who does the distribution and who does the marketing? So this is a good question and a tough question in the sense that it's changed over time. I think, I think at first the, the primary purveyors, the producers of misinformation were state-backed agencies, um, often in authoritarian regimes. Often these were military units that were retasked to do social media manipulation. And uh, you know, effectively, we're talking about the Russian government and perhaps um, Iran, Venezuela, um, with with dozens, if not hundreds, of staff. Right, and these are formal organizations with hiring plans and performance bonuses and receptionists and telephones and desks and offices and rent bills. These are, these aren't lone wolf actors. These are these are, in the sociological sense, these are formal organizations. Then it became. I guess, and that, so that's the story I would have said, told for 2016, 2017. By 2017, 2018, it was pretty clear that there were political parties in the West uh, spending money to hire, hire these services out of um, traditional communications firms, PR firms in London, New York, and um, Toronto. Uh, this was much more of a mainstream communications tactic. And in several countries, um, the far right, ultra conservative, so, so not small c conservatives, I mean, ultra extremist conservatives, white nationalists, um, the most, um, most sexist misogynist um, groups started to use these same technologies on, on domestic sort of domestic political affairs. 
more recently, we're just finishing up our, our in this year's inventory of what, what these formal organizations look like. It's, um, it's become much more industrialized in the sense that um, many different communications firms offer these services. It used to be a few of the large global firms and, and politicians would hand out big contracts at election time to, to get these services. It's now quite accessible. And um, if you're a lobbyist with the budget, this is the kind of thing you, you spend money on. So um, the book Computational Propaganda that you co-edited with Sam Woolley is effectively a companion volume to Lie Machines. They, they, the two books have a, a similar framework, but Computational Propaganda adds a series of detailed case studies from around the world. And for us at IDS, obviously, we're particularly interested in how the use of digital technologies play out differently in different countries. So can you tell us a bit about what you're learning about how lie machines in different countries have different characteristics or different effects? Different effects, certainly. Um, perhaps I can say a little bit about the, the countries where they tend to start. And then we have a, you and I have a shared interest in Africa, so I can offer some observations of what I, what I think is important in, in the African context. Um, the, the Russian government style of doing misinformation tends to involve the creation of fake users, fake local fake citizens who exist on social media um, with uh, very complex stories. They're there for years. They post photographs of family members and flowers and soap opera scores. They're, they're managed by uh, one person who may have, we call them legends, so they may have a, a stable of 20 or 30 legends that they just update on a, on a regular basis to keep the content fresh. And then one day they get assigned to, and, and they, they start to talk about politics when somebody's paid for that or, or, right, or, or, or when, the, when the political instructions come in. That's the Russian style of producing misinformation at the moment. The Chinese government style um, is different because we, for many years we knew they had the capacity. We saw some experiments on social media manipulation, but there didn't seem to be many issues that the Chinese government actually cared about enough to speak to an English language audience on platforms that were banned within China, right? So they, they just didn't, they didn't contribute to Twitter or, or Facebook that much until democracy protests in Hong Kong and the world's attention was drawn to the Northwest, uh, Northwest the, the, treat, the treatment of uh, Wigmeers in, in the Northwest. Then suddenly China became interested in what English language Twitter, journalists, politicians were saying on a platform that the Chinese mainlanders can't use. And that's when we saw many more accounts wake, wake up and they were not accounts that had um, long years of history behind them. They were purchased suddenly. There were 40,000 accounts working on this issue. And then suddenly overnight, there were 10,000 accounts working on some other issue um, to get us to think that the democracy protests were all um, rioters, hoodlums, uh, or that the you know the retraining camps were um, job-seeking programs in the Northwest, not not um, not assimilation programs. And so the Chinese strategy simply seems to be a numbers strategy. They will purchase tens of thousands of accounts at once and set them going. So those are the different styles, right? Yeah. Misinformation that that uh, the main producers seem to have. And you 
mentioned that you were going to come on to Africa. Are, are there different mm -hmm. characteristics there? There are. So Africa's uh, well, there are so many things that make um, there's so many Africa's and so many things that make Africa interesting, right? In North Africa is um, part of the world where um, politi modern political Islam has evolved quite significantly uh, over social media, and many of us are still inspired by what happened uh, what happened during the Arab Spring. There's another example. I think it's very, actually quite difficult to tell a sensible story about what happened in the Arab Spring without talking about information technology. Whether or not you're pleased with the outcomes, not, not many of us are pleased with any of the outcomes, but regardless of the outcomes, it's hard not to talk about the Arab Spring without making room for technology. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the story is a little bit different. Their misinformation, what we might think of as misinformation, has been around for a long time. Um, probably travels more over SMS than it does over social media platforms, but that may depend from city to city. And uh, there's such a, um, a very different media, print media environment that it's actually quite tough for us to study the, the modern trends in misinformation because um, you know, in Rwanda, the government has such tight control over the media. It's um, no longer the darling of democratic reform. Ghana has an election uh, and, and their political conversation is um, pretty mature, as I think, as, as African democracies go. But, but there's other parts of the world, Nigeria, Kenya, uh, that where misinformation swirls quite actively. And it's, it's tough for anybody to know what's going on much less researchers in, a, in another country. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I've shared copies of your book with researchers in different countries. And, and one colleague, um, he's researching government disinformation in Zimbabwe. He wanted me to ask you whether you've experienced any ethical dilemmas researching this unethical behavior of those coordinating lie machines whilst yourself still researching in an ethical way. Yes, and so I can talk about things that um, in, in um, ethics management, we, we might call adverse events, right? So thing, things that happened um, that were unexpected um, and that we, we did our best to um, mitigate the effects of. Very early on, one of our researchers participated in a contest to build a bot and the goal was to build this is six years ago maybe the goal was to build a political bot that could convince someone that the world was not flat right so it had to be fairly sophisticated the text had to be interactive it was going to it was going to find somebody on twitter engage with them uh, ask them questions and try to convince them that the world was not flat um, as it happens, the researcher, and this is a point of pride, the researcher was part of a team that won the contest and they, they built a bot that managed to convince somebody that uh, indeed the world shared papers from the National Science Foundation and you know, shared, you know, engaged with the different issues and, and, and that was the outcome. Um, but the project was run just before the Christmas break in the US and the bot was left on over Christmas. It, it engaged with somebody else on Christmas Eve, a woman who didn't realize it was a bot and thought that it was um, somewhat pathetic 
that there was somebody working on this issue on Christmas Eve, and she engaged with it to try to convert it to Christianity. And now this was not a planned interaction uh, that, that we had not anticipated this at all. It was not within the scope of, of ethical activity that we would, um, and of course we felt terrible. We, we disengaged the moment we caught it. We uh, apologized and um, you know, explained what the research was about. We don't believe there was any harm, uh, but, but there are these kinds of trade-offs sometimes in working with tech, technologies and technical systems um, that um, can pr produce adverse effects. Yeah. And can I actually answer your, your colleague's question a second time, a different way? Sure. Um, I think um, one of the toughest things we've seen is how civil society groups try to cope with being attacked by automated messaging. And in some countries, particularly Ukraine, some civil society groups have decided that the best way to cope is to also use bots to develop their own computational propaganda um, techniques and campaigns. And, and it's a simple rationale. If you know the Russian government's going to invest a significant amount of money and people into, um, into making the Roma look bad, um, trying to prevent democracy from uprising, uh, democracy advocates from working in, in Poland or, Hong, uh, or Ukraine. If you know that you're going to be under attack, why not invest in the defense infrastructure? Now, as researchers, we, we haven't figured out how to answer that question. I mean, I'll say as an individual that I don't think escalation is a good idea, that it can't end well, but um, you know, I'm not part of their civil society group that's, that's wrestling with this stuff to me, this stuff is, is often an arm's length away. Um, for them, it's uh, it's a matter of, uh, sometimes it's a matter of life and death. Sometimes it's a matter of, of having all their, their good programming disappear overnight because of an automated campaign. So there was one passage in Lie Machines that intrigued me, and you've, you've already touched on this issue, but I wanted to check whether I'd understood your meaning correctly. So you say, and I quote, sensible explanations of politics need to give attention to the causal role of information technologies. And I'm focused on the word causal. So should we take that literally to mean that it's technology that causes political effects rather than the other way around? Um, I would say, well, I'd say yes, or that it's a little bit, a little bit of both, right? You need to be, there will be for, for almost for every sensible analysis of a political outcome these days, um, you need to attend to the possibility that a social media platform has had some oddball effect that wasn't anticipated on a fraction of the population who turned up and did something that pollsters would never have anticipated. It, it's hard to know. I mean, we can, we can talk about different scenarios, different contexts, but um, it's rare for a social it's rare for a, a democracy advocate or a civil society leader to not be tech savvy. If you're a politician running for office, you must have a social media campaign. And if you don't have one or it's a lousy one, you will not get elected. And th th there's very few successful, I mean, I, I'd be hard pressed to identify a modern politician that wasn't good on social media or one having no, no social media program at all. I guess my question though goes to 
whatever the technology is causing, isn't there a put a person causing the technology to do that thing? Don't we don't we need to attribute the cause to the the human rather than to the technology? I suppose indirectly, in the sense that uh, uh, there would have been a programmer behind um, many of the algorithms. Um, although, you know, we don't know that because we don't have the ability to see in under the hood. We don't know. I, I assume that social media, most um, that Facebook's um, social media algorithms are not actually among the most complex in the world and were not themselves generated by other algorithms. So let's assume that there's some kind of engineer who has pretty regular oversight over, over how Facebook distributes content. Um, there's still an effective distance between how that engineer imagined a good way of distributing political ads and then how the ads actually get distributed. Um, in some cases, Facebook will uh, create these peer review systems where you put a human in the loop to uh, explore what kinds of content are going out or getting purchased and, and uh, decide what's hate speech and what's, uh, you know, inappropriate or what's sexually explicit or what's, what violates community norms. But um, in some conditions, on some platforms, it actually is fully automated. It is not mediated by, by human. And I think there've been a, um, I think we have a good number of examples now where major policy discussions have gone off the rails because of a, a degree of automation that um, we didn't expect to operate in the way that it did. It's fascinating. And, and, and I've started using your um, model of the lie machine to think that problem through. So in response, I just use your lie machine to say, look, the political lie in the at the beginning was produced by a politician. The political lie having been produced is mediated and distributed using algorithms and other technologies. But were it not for the cause, the human who created the lie, the other things would be irrelevant. So it's, as you say, it's complicated. <laughs> um, it's changing all the time. And, and that's, a, that's a wonderful way to think of the path. Um, what would you say to a scenario that well, I, I think may be on the horizon in which um, machine learning is used to work with your behavioral data to fully compose a political message? Now, I think, I think Cambridge Analytica did not have AI. It, 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 there was nothing AI-ish machine learning about what it was doing. It was sophisticated data analysis. But, you know, in the next few years, I would say, um, there's a lot of behavioral research about how we respond to different faces and women respond well to, to men with deep voices and men respond well to women with deep voices. We, we know some of these racial cues. We know just enough of these racial cues um, to be able to work with behavioral data to customize to the individual a political content. Now in that scenario, yes, I suppose a lobbyist would have paid to build the system and a human, the, the, the lobbyist would have decided, would have set some constraints, like make sure to um, make more conservatives or, or make people more liberal and make sure they show up on election day. Those would be the broad constraints. But within that, within that constraint set, 
the amount of human agency and how much a message is produced is, I would say, quite small. Yeah, that's no, fascinating. So, so the book clarifies that, the, the inner workings of the lie machine. But I wondered what your thoughts were on why the lie machine exists in the first place. What factors explain why political lies exist and why they've now taken on this digital form of the lie machine? Well, I think um, it's fair to say that um, there has often and often, if not always, been misinformation and propaganda and positioning in politics. Oh, those may be the definition, the keywords in politics, right? But I would say that the distance between what a politician actually says and what their campaign manager generates and what the social media subcontractor, you know, actually spits out and then what, what a voter actually hears is now quite large, right? Um, so we now have systems that allow somebody to um, deliver a, an environmentally friendly green message in the city and then talk about the importance of logging to the economy in the countryside. And um, there's a chance that, that somebody might hear both messages and say, wait a minute, that's saying both things. But I think it's, it's, it's now easier to, to spread the odds that the people in the countryside will hear about the importance of logging and mining and the people in the city will, will hear about your, your eco values. Yeah. So how do we dismantle lie machines? Um, and is that a political, a, a technical or a, a public education uh, task? Great. And I mean, that's a good question because you set me up with all the answers. Yeah, yes, it's, yes, it's involved public education, especially for young people, right? Media, media literacy. Um, there's several governments around the world that do media literacy well. There's plenty that don't. But, but we know a bit about what good digital media literacy looks like. I would say that the, the, that's a long-term effect, like a long-term strategy is to work on media literacy, um, critical thinking skills in, in university, in higher education needs to do critical thinking skills better. But one of the proximate causes of the problems we've, we've had are that Facebook and Twitter serve up large amounts of misinformation um, when people vote within the three or four days before people vote. Most people, most of the time, don't talk about politics on Instagram, right? That's, that's rare until we get close to election day, then, then, then people start talking politics. And that's the moment in which um, the technical systems um, could kick in, should kick in uh, to prevent misinformation, to prevent people from um, degrading trust in how an elections run. And those are the moments where you want voters to have really high quality information, right? Because that's, that's when they're thinking about this stuff. Do you think there was a difference in the four days before this U.S. election and the 2016 one? Um, definitely in substance. So here, the substance was much more about fraud and stealing the election and undermining trust in the administration of the election. Um, substance was different. I think structurally, I can't tell, or, or from, from our analysis, we, we haven't seen as much Russian origin, Russian government origin content. So, you know, for the US election in an important way, they sort of did it to themselves or, or their own domestic 
the Republican Party and their own domestic um, ultra conservatives generated their own poison. So do you think the response from the social media companies was different between the, the two US elections? Yes, I think it was, I think the, the, most of the social media firms were much more attentive. Um, this time they were actually prepared to flag major political leaders like um, Donald Trump, who were spreading misinformation and generating it themselves. I think the, the, I think the firms, uh, Google and YouTube, did a particularly good job promoting high quality COVID health information during the election and demoting the junk stuff further down the search, uh, you know, for search returns. So they've demonstrated the technical skills um, and they, they would have had those skills in 2016. They just at that point um, were not expecting to use them or as you say, we're not, we're not willing to use them at that point. Um, so we're running out of time and I wanted to look towards the horizon. So you, we work in a very rapidly changing field. Um, what have been some of the changes since you wrote the book? What are you currently working on or what's on the horizon for you now? Thank you. Well, I think unfortunately, um, we've had to move to uh, study COVID misinformation, right? And this is some of the most subtle, most complex and also most complex, right? It, it connects uh, it connects a long-standing theory that the government is trying to put microchips in your arms to um, a cult of personality around Bill Gates and how he's um, trying to track us all to a fairly well-established anti-vax campaign to um, uncertainty around COVID, right? Because governments, not all governments have been making good decisions. So it's a really big complex set of um, uh, scope of a problem and studying COVID misinformation is, is the thing that's taking up most of my time. I think in the years ahead, what I'd like to do, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure I can study misinformation forever. It's it's emotionally draining. To, so sometimes I wish I could wash my computer with soap, right? It's, it's, it's difficult to actually to process this stuff um, meaningfully uh, after, after all these years. But I am getting more and more inter interested in the impact of misinformation on children. So the cohort 12 to 16, who are not today's voters, but are tomorrow's voters, right? And I don't think we know much about how they get their news or how they process information. And many of the effects, effects that we've seen, we've, we've seen by studying people who are older than 18, right? Their voting age. So I'm, I'm starting to look ahead to what, what this impact is on, on the people who may or may not hold democratic values five years from now. And are you optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, what do you hope for? Can I ask, answer the second part about that? So I would say I am, um, I, I can't, I can't, I can't answer the optimistic, pessimistic one. I would say that I'm cynical, but not fatalistic. So I, I am, I am skeptical that the firms will do much more. Uh, I think the European Commission may come up with some good, reasonable, light touch regulations. I don't think the American government will ever regulate in a significant way that, that helps on these problems. So I, I'm cynical about that. I'm not fatalistic in the sense that it, it's not too late to change and it doesn't have to be this way. There are some things that we could do to, um, and that the social media firms did do for the 2020 election uh, and for COVID misinformation, but 
I don't know if they're going to export those ideas. Um, they did they did a lot of good flagging for the 2020 election in the U.S. Are they going to pay that much attention to the election in Ghana next week? And the evidence suggests that they will not. But um, you know, India is an enormous democracy. Uh, Indonesia is an enormous democracy. And will the good tools that they've built for their American user base, the US user base, actually be put to work for, for democracies in, in other around the world? Um, I hope so. That's what I would hope for. We, we learned that they have the technical capability, but the question is, have they got the political will and are they prepared to put the economic resources in place? That's a good sum up. Professor Philip Howard, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us at IDS Between the Lines. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.